We're on the record. I'm Sheila Cast. Good morning. As temperatures sag, COVID boosters, flu shots, and other vaccines are on our minds. Doctors and scientists are keeping an eye on a range of ominous viruses, beyond seasonal flu, even beyond COVID-19 and its many variants. In a few minutes, a virus relatively new in the headlines. Around the country and here in Maryland, pediatric units are filling with young people infected by RSV, respiratory syncytial virus. We had um, upwards of 20 or 30 patients waiting in emergency departments across the region looking for ICU beds in pediatric intensive care units, and those just weren't available. But first, a virus that has tormented us for decades. December is HIV-AIDS Awareness Month. How far has treatment and prevention come? Why is there still no vaccine against HIV when it was possible to develop a vaccine against COVID quickly? What is it about the human immunodeficiency virus that has thwarted scientists for almost 40 years? For that, we turn to Dr. Robert Gallo, who may know more about how HIV works than anyone on the planet. Gallo directs the Institute for Human Virology at the University of Maryland School of Medicine, and he co-founded the Global Virus Network. In 1984, Gallo co-discovered that HIV was the cause of AIDS and developed the HIV blood test. Full disclosure, I serve on the Virology Institute's advisory board. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Gallo. Thank you, Sheila. Happy to be here. During the pandemic, we witnessed what seemed like a scientific miracle. Two COVID-19 vaccines were created and authorized for emergency use in record time. Why was this possible for COVID-19? The messenger RNA technology, which is newly applied, though there were not so many new principles with the development of the vaccine, but it was the first real application in this, in this regard, is not really that hard to make and to make variants of it. The problem, um, I guess, in my mind, I think most was its delivery system and people have been working for some years how to deliver it and, and that it might work. These were an animal study, so it's a long process. So, and you know, it's, it's a successful vaccine but with uh, success in quotes because it does not protect against infection as you know, and many people do get sick, as you know, and even vaccinated people do die. However, not nearly as much as the unvaccinated. So in case anybody or you were wondering, no, I'm a very strong advocate for getting vaccinated. I've been vaccinated, I think now five times. Um, I respect these current vaccines, but they, they are limited and they don't last long, as you know. They're lasting about five months. So we have serious problems still with, with the vaccines, even though you should definitely be vaccinated because it's a lot better than not being vaccinated. Let me ask you, what is it about HIV that makes it so difficult to develop a vaccine? Now, with HIV, this story is a very different virus. It's an RNA virus. That's true. They're both RNA viruses, but that's where the similarity ends. They both have, well, they both are public health problems. They both produced a pandemic. But HIV, remember, is a retrovirus. And as such, it inserts its genes into our DNA upon infection within a day. So right away, you've got integrated genes in you that are for the virus. So if you don't have protective immunity right from the beginning, and I think you need sterilizing immunity, you've got a problem. 
because like most RNA viruses, it, it reproduces itself a lot. And in so doing, it mutates a lot too, because it doesn't have a very faithful mechanism for copying its own genetic information. So it's constantly undergoing variation. But the key difference is th there are very few viruses and retroviruses are the king to integrate, to become upon infection permanent with you, no matter what you do, you've got viral genes in you and the daughter cells will have the same genes. So when cells divide, those genes are passed to the next round of cells. So you need what's not required for almost all other vaccines. I believe sterilizing immunity, complete protection against infection, not allowing anything in at the beginning, right at the get-go. That is the basic problem. Plus, like, like COVID, the antibodies don't last. There's a problem with durability. And indeed, our institute, myself included, have a significant grant from NIH to try to understand why and how. We were able to predict that COVID antibodies and vaccines would not last right at the beginning, before there was a vaccine, by virtue of the spike being similar to HIV spikes in certain ways that allows us to predict that these antibodies are not gonna last because the cells that make the antibodies do not mature for some reason to become the long living cells B lymphocytes, we call them, that convert to what we call plasma cells that make antibodies that last a long time. It doesn't happen for certain type of spike proteins, flu, HIV, this guy, the COVID, and a bunch of others. When you see that, they know. So we were able to predict that right from the beginning. So back to HIV. So antibodies don't last. It mutates like crazy. So you're not covering all the variants. And you say, well, you have that with other RNA viruses. Yeah, but they don't integrate. So you're getting rid of some and you get other antibodies coming in against the whole virus. And eventually you start to be able to control it to some extent. The COVID not as great as others. Why would not a vaccine against AIDS also do that, even if it's not perfect, that eventually there would be more and more antibodies? HIV fundamentally differs because of the integration. That is that right off the bat, it becomes part of you. It puts its genes in our cells. When our cells divide, it's in the descendants. Now, they can sit there silently. You can make an immune response and have a vaccine to it. The vaccine doesn't last that long, and you could keep it a little bit suppressed. But, all, but the vaccine antibodies, or even the T cells, don't last that long. And the HIV is still sitting there in what we call a latent state. But periodically, it pops out. So if your immune response is not long lasting, you've got troubles. Meanwhile, as it pops out, it is able to reproduce so efficiently, like COVID, it creates a lot of variants, variations of itself, like COVID, yes. But it's always there integrated, so it keeps popping out and your antibodies and your T cells can't last forever. And in fact, don't last that long. So you're always chasing your tail. The difference is fundamentally is the integration. Both have the problem that they vary, the viruses vary, and our immune system is trying to keep up with them. Both have get resultant disease as partly a consequence from that. But in the case of HIV, you're not just sweeping out the virus when you get an immune response. You've always got cells here and there that have genes that are integrated and they are quiet. And periodically, they're not quiet and they start popping out again. And integration Look, means integrated into our genes, into our DNA once exactly, we're infected. Exactly. 
and you don't know when it's going to pop out and why. In addition, we have found that one of the most important molecules that is part of our beginning immunity, what we call the innate immunity within one hour, that is induced by any virus infection, that in the case of HIV, there's a huge problem, that with HIV, it keeps elevating higher and higher. It keeps chasing, the more virus is produced, it keeps going higher and higher. This normally good guy interferon, but when it gets very high, it's toxic. And we're finding out and just about to publish with our collaborators in Paris, that when it's high and toxic, it is paralyzing a good part of our immunity and a good part of the AIDS problem, which is not yet known, which we're just about to publish or write, write for publication now. That's virologist Dr. Robert Gallo, co-discoverer of the virus that causes AIDS and co-founder of the Institute for Human Virology at the University of Maryland Med School. Here on The Record on WYPR, I'm Sheila Cast. We're speaking about the challenges behind a potential HIV vaccine. When it comes to developing an HIV vaccine, are there pathways or approaches that appear promising? Yes, I think there are some. But there's always been that in our minds, and we've always said there are some, you know, it's a, in, and we're not sure. We have to say more frequently, we don't know. But I certainly believe, I see ideas, I see possibilities, but they may or may not work. Now, what are the possibilities? My belief is the possibility is first to pursue continually the functional cure where no therapy is needed anymore. We think that is doable. And the drugs today are more and more efficacious. But most importantly, pharmaceutical industry and university scientists and other scientists are working to get long lasting drugs. So people don't forget and can take them just maybe a few times in the course of a year. That'll make a huge difference. At the same time, better understanding of how the virus causes disease. Scientists call pathogenesis better understanding of that is going to lead to new ideas. But how about preventing infection? Right now, yeah, there are some ideas that are cooking and that are going forward that might be of some help in this regard. We might do a bit better than we've done, but I don't see anything very quick uh, being solving the problem of a terrific vaccine, let's say. We have ideas for that. That's very complicated, and it's something in our our thoughts and plans right now. In fact, I'm going to a meeting in Europe to talk over funding for it. But in the meantime, or maybe permanently, we can use drugs to prevent infection that are safe and that only are needed a few times a year. Now, you can't give that to the whole world, but you could give it to the high-risk groups and really hinder this pandemic greatly. For example, in Africa, where there's a high rate of infection in certain places, or in our drug addiction population in Baltimore, get them to the clinic for their methadone or something else, and then convince them that taking a preventive drug twice a year won't hurt them, but may likely protect them against HIV. That's the direction that is probably gonna make the biggest impact in the next couple of years. Dr. Gallo, it's exciting to hear what you're up to. Keep, keep in touch with us. Thanks. You're welcome, thank you. Dr. Robert Gallo is director of the Institute of Human Virology at the University of Maryland School of Medicine and co-founder of the Global Virus Network. Short break on the record. When we're back, 
hospitals are grappling with a soaring number of RSV infections this year, and children are particularly vulnerable to the virus. We speak with the medical director of a local pediatric ICU. I'm Sheila Cast. Stay with us. Welcome back to On the Record. I'm Sheila Cast. When COVID vaccines and boosters were approved for children, parents and caregivers breathed a collective sigh of relief. Now they're back on alert as infections and hospitalizations for RSV, respiratory syncytial virus, caught hospital systems across the country off guard. A Maryland Department of Health dashboard tracking RSV shows hospitalizations climbed rapidly from September to October, soaring from the high 30s to a peak of 263. In the last week of November, hospitalizations were down to 76 children. Dr. Jason Custer is the medical director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at the University of Maryland Children's Hospital and associate professor of pediatrics at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. Dr. Custer is leading coordination efforts around the rise in pediatric RSV cases and other respiratory viruses for the entire 11-hospital University of Maryland medical system. Welcome to the show, Dr. Custer. Hi, thanks for having me. Hospitalizations for RSV infections happen every year. What's different this season? This was a really unique season. So um, if we think back to March of 2020, when we first learned about COVID, we um, collectively decided that the right thing to do was to put masks on and to make sure that we didn't spread COVID-19 to each other. Um, One of the other effects of that was that we didn't spread a number of these other viruses that you mentioned to each other as well. So the the RSV season of the winter of 2020 and 2021 was a lot less severe than we typically saw. And so now we have children under the age of two and three who have really never seen RSV. And so we had more children infected with RSV this go round because we're back in school um, and we're without masks. And so respiratory viruses do spread more quickly in our population. Are the immune systems of really young kids especially vulnerable? Yes. So we know that in infancy that our immune systems are not fully developed. So one of the things that is a really good mitigating strategy against this is actually breastfeeding. So breastfeeding provides the mother's antibodies to the baby um, in order to help fight off those infections as the baby's immune system develops. And then as we grow up and we encounter these different viruses, we develop what's called really a... a, um, a memory of our immune system so that we see a virus once and our immune system develops memory to that. And then the next time we see it, we're able to fight it off more effectively. So it's really the same concept uh, that we build vaccines on is that you see part of the virus, your immune system develops a memory towards that virus. And so the next time you come in contact with your immune system's primed and ready, and they can fight that virus off more quickly. Some people have raised questions about the precautions taken during the pandemic, like masking and closing schools. I mean, were we 
overly cautious? Do kids need to get sick to keep their immune system strong? I think that is still a, an open debate in many circles. I think that it was the right thing to do to to curb and, you know, as we talked about in early in the pandemic, to flatten the curve. Uh, we knew that that COVID-19 virus was very severe. We didn't have any treatments and hospitals were overwhelmed at the beginning. We typically know that children have between six and eight respiratory viral illnesses a year, and that does enhance their immune system and makes them less vulnerable to those viruses in the future. So, you know, I think there's there's a mix on both sides. I don't know that we know the absolute answer, uh, but I do know that that having less severe respiratory viral seasons in 2020 and 21 has really made this 22 season pretty significant. How does RSV spread? Does, does it spread differently than COVID? They're very similar. So we know that respiratory viral illnesses spread through contact and droplet. So as we cough and sneeze, you know, we often put our uh, hands up to our face, then we get those viruses on our hands and we can spread it through that contact piece. Uh, we also can spread it through the air, through droplets. Um, as we cough and sneeze, we produce small droplets that go into the air. And so it's close contact and it's relatively prolonged close contact. So you you know, just coming in contact with somebody, you know, passing in a grocery store or something like that is not going to be contagious. But those prolonged indoor contact um, where you're face to face, having conversation, eating meals, those are your more high risk occasions. What was the situation within the University of Maryland medical system like a month or two ago in terms of pediatric cases? I mean, did you have enough beds for pediatric patients? It was really an hour by hour discussion. Uh, and so partnering with our, our nurse leaders from across the medical center and across the health system, really trying to bring any bed online safely that we could uh, during the height of the surge. We had um, upwards of 20 or 30 patients waiting in emergency departments across the region looking for ICU beds in pediatric intensive care units, and those just weren't available. So they were staying in those emergency departments, which are often not equipped to care for those really sick patients for much, much longer than they would. And what is the situation like today? So thankfully, uh, partnering across the region, we have, I think, managed this very well. We still have more patients hospitalized than typical at this time of year. However, we've been able to bring additional pediatric ICU beds staffed and online, which is, which is great. Um, and we're getting patients into the hospitals more quickly. And so we're seeing, we call them borders. Borders are patients that are in emergency departments that should be in inpatient hospital beds, and yet those beds aren't available. So we're seeing less boarding across the region than we were a month ago. Do you expect an uptick in cases when people gather for the holidays? That's certainly on our mind. Uh, we're certainly, as you mentioned, the RSV cases have dropped, but what has really taken its place is, is influenza. So we're seeing much more flu virus in our community circulating now. Thankfully, that's not leading to a ton of hospitalizations in the pediatric population, but we do know that influenza can be a very significant virus, particularly in um, the elderly population. So we wanna make sure that we're getting vaccinated, make sure that we're encouraging vaccination across our communities particularly thinking about holiday gatherings. What are the, the signs that differentiate RSV from influenza? It's a good question. So in, in, the, um, in the smallest babies, what RSV is, it's a lower respiratory tract infection. And it's actually an inflammation. If you think about um, our lungs and airways as a tree, 
the inflammation in RSV is on the very small branches of those trees. And in babies, those small branches are quite small. So a little teeny bit of inflammation can cause a really significant problem in, in our smallest babies. Though influenza has similar properties as far as can be inflammatory to the lungs, it doesn't seem to be quite as severe in those really small airways. Um, and so children tend to tolerate flu a little bit better than they do RSV uh, when they're very, very small. What are the signs that it's time to go to the emergency room with RSV? So I was talked to families about you know, watching while communicating first with their pediatrician. So I think it's really important for families to have these conversations and understand with their pediatrician if their child is particularly vulnerable. Um, so what I would say in those particularly vulnerable populations would be babies that are born premature, babies with chronic lung conditions or chronic heart conditions, or children that have um, immunodeficiency, so their immune system doesn't work as normally. So those patients may need to seek medical care uh, sooner in the course. What we wanna look for is uh, our children that are breathing fast and children that are breathing hard. And what I mean is they're using those extra muscles. Their, uh, their belly is moving up and down. Typically they don't use their stomach muscles to breathe. When we see that, um, that means that the child is in distress uh, and they should be evaluated. This is On the Record on WIPRM Sheila Cast. My guest is Dr. Jason Custer, who directs the pediatric ICU at the University of Maryland Children's Hospital. Can adults get RSV? Absolutely. We probably, most healthy adults probably do get RSV um, maybe once a year, once every other year. In adults, it often feels more like a cold um, because their airways are bigger. And so when they have this little bit of inflammation in their airways, they may have a cough for a couple of days and brush it off. Um, and they typically you know, would not have to seek medical care for RSV. In vulnerable adult populations, back to those patients who don't have normal immune systems and can't fight infections off normally, that can lead to hospitalization in adults. Is there a vaccine against RSV? Not yet. So um, thankfully, we have the Center for Vaccine Development at the University of Maryland. They're actively working on a vaccine for RSV. There is a treatment, it's called a monoclonal antibody, um, and it's for a very select portion of the population, back to those children that are very high with, uh, in the vulnerability of RSV. Those are the premature infants, infants with chronic lung and heart disease. They can get an injection once a month during RSV season, and that would be through their pediatrician. You actually have to qualify with those specific criteria in order to get that. So that is the one mitigating treatment we have against RSV, hopefully there will be a vaccine online in the future. There have been social media rumors linking a rise in RSV cases to the COVID-19 vaccine. What would you say to folks who are worried about a connection? Well, I think the science doesn't really um, bear out on that connection. We've got more patients vaccinated against COVID-19 than we have almost against any other vaccine. And that safety profile is held up over time. So we're very confident that that helps prevent hospitalizations for COVID-19. And so anytime that as a population, we can vaccinate against a vaccine preventable illness, that is a benefit to the entire population. It keeps patients out of the hospital and keeps those hospital beds open for the patients who really need it. So... What precaution should families take uh, in regards to RSV as we enter a season of gatherings and indoor activities? 
biggest things are going to go back to those strategies that we all became very familiar with at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. So that's going to be washing your hands. That is a big one. And I think as a, um, as a population, we did a really, really good job of that early on. Everybody was very cognizant of having hand sanitizer, washing your hands with soap and water. Um, so that's a good way to not spread germs. Staying home if you're sick um, and keeping your children home from school or daycare if they're having fevers or respiratory symptoms is really important to not spread the virus to the next child. And really thinking critically about if you're going to go to a holiday gathering and you have children who are sick, you know, maybe postponing that holiday gathering for a couple of days to make sure that they're not contagious. And then getting those vaccines against the things that we can vaccinate against, and that would really be influenza and COVID, because we do see a number of children who come in with multiple viruses at the same time. Um, and so those mitigating those vaccine preventable illnesses can be really, really helpful. Dr. Custer, thanks for talking to us about this. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Dr. Jason Custer is the medical director of the pediatric ICU at the University of Maryland Children's Hospital and associate professor of pediatrics at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. I'm Sheila Cast. Glad you're with us on the record. Come back tomorrow. Thank you.